0: young girl weeps in a far distant land she has no one to show her god's love starving child. She has no shelter from the cold. Earthly provision will ease their suffering. I give you my heart Lord, I'll give you my heart.
1: Let's take our Bibles today and turn over to the book of First Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today. First Corinthians chapter six. we're going to begin reading in verse nine. We're going to read through verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I had some jokes for you today, but the singles were not happy with them. They didn't like them. They said, there's no way, preacher, you can even attempt them. Well, I had to burn them. They, they wouldn't even let me leave without getting rid of them. I'll have a few for you later. I, I've got a couple good ones, even though they don't think so. All right, chapter six, verse nine through eleven. The Bible says, Know ye not that the unrighteousness shall that unrighteousness, excuse me, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor. Adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was one of the most decadent, one of the most uh, devilish and depraved cultures that there has ever been on the face of the earth. You know, sometimes in America, we get the idea that we have sunk to the lowest level of any culture of any time. But the reality is, is that we are still on a road that's leading down. Morally, we need to change that direction, obviously. But this church... And these people in Corinth understood sin probably to a different degree than we even understand sin. They were born to God out of a culture, a society of decadence, total depravity, sin abounding on every corner. Now the Apostle Paul speaks to the church. The church is comprised of believers. These are they that have received Christ as their Savior, that have been called out of the world, and now they're being part of a group or an assembly of believers. And Paul shares some truths in the book of 1 Corinthians. A principle, a thought that I think is a tremendous, powerful principle. Today, I want to have a word of prayer, and then I want to take us through the book of Corinthians. It will not take as long as it would take to go through it all. We'll shorten it up. But I want to share with you a principle that we learned from the book of 1 Corinthians that I believe will be a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, an inspiration to you. And I think it will make you and I both better people today if we'll listen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We are so grateful for your love and grace in our life. We ask, Lord Jesus, that today you'd be real in our hearts. Father, today gathered in this assembly are a people that are hurting, have different needs, abounding in heartache even. But Lord, today I pray that the balm of Gilead would be applied to their heart, their life, that they would, Father, be encouraged, uplifted, strengthened. Lord, may you be glorified today. May you be magnified and exalted. We'll give you the praise for that. Now fill me with your Holy Ghost and may I be a mouthpiece for thee. Lord, may you just anoint every listening ear that they may hear with spiritual ears and allow the truth of this book, the Word of God, be driven deep in their hearts. May it affect our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Again, when we look at the church of Corinth, they were out of a... Very difficult background and culture. But as we look at this book to the Corinthians, we find a marvelous truth. First of all, we notice chapters 1 through 6. And in chapters 1 through 6, we learn what they are. It speaks about what they are, their present faith. We see that in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus our Lord, both theirs and ours. Notice, if you would, chapter 1, verse 4. Or, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4, yes. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. In verse 5 he says that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. These were saints. That's what they were. That's who they are. They're saints. We also note that he goes on in chapter 1 verse 11. And he's going to begin to point out that their present faith was riddled with contention and carnality. It says here in 1 Corinthians 1 11, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Obviously there were some issues in the church. There were problems abounding. There were people that were not seeing eye to eye. He goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Notice the carnality, notice them uh, dividing up, notice them taking sides even in the church. I'm of Him, and I'm of Him, and I'm of Him, and, and that's who I follow. I don't follow Him, I follow only Him. And Boy, there's all kind of contention, there's all kind of strife, there's carnality or fleshliness abounding in the church. That's their present faith. Yes, they're saints. But yet still, in the midst of the fact that they're saints, born-again believers, in the body of Christ, there's contention and carnality. In chapters 1 through 6, we note their position in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Verse 16 of that same chapter. Know ye not that they are the temple of know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He says in chapter 3, verse 23, And ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Right, yeah. I mean, he's saying, man, you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are labors with the Lord. You're his husbandry. You're his building. I mean, he's, he, you're, you're, you are the temple of God. You're saints, but you're not always acting like it. Your present faith is riddled with contention and carnality, strife and division. But your position is in Christ. Keep that in mind, he says. And finally, he points out some major sin in the camp. In chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. We have immorality abounding in the church. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, 5 to say, I speak to your shame Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? He says, listen, we have this major issue in the church. We have this man who's with his father's wife, and yet everyone's almost proud about it. We're going around saying we have liberty and we have freedom and we're in Christ, but we don't have to maintain a moral standard. I mean, we're free indeed. He says, what is your problem? Don't you understand that you can't allow sin to reign in your body, nor can you allow it to reign in the body of Christ, the church. So in chapters 1 through 6, we see what they are. Paul spends some time, and God spends time pointing out what they are. Their present faith. They're saints. They're contentious and carnal. Their position is in Christ, but their sin in the camp. Then we come to the passage that we recently read. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And I want to read it one more time. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but not dece- be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now, in this particular passage now, we learn what they were what they were, or their past failures. Remember, they come out of a decadent, a very deprived, depraved culture. Sin abounded in their lives. They were raised to think that that was normal. That was the way it ought to be. And so in their lives, there were a number of sins that you and I would look upon and say, whoa, that's a bad one. Oh, they shouldn't be involved in that. But that's what they were. We see in chapters 1 through 6 what they are, their present faith. In chapter 6, just 9 through 11, we read what they were, their past failures. And I want you to notice something. He points out their lifestyle and sin, yes. He reminds them of what they were, without a doubt. But notice, before you can blink, I mean just that quickly, just that quickly, he's off the subject and he's moving forward. But ye are... He says, sanctified, excuse me, washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our Lord. Such were some of you. That's what you were. And he moves right past it. And he comes to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, through the rest of the book, verse chapter 16, The next ten chapters now will be spent on what they're supposed to be or their promising future. It opens up chapter 7 by saying, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. Paul begins by saying, here's where you are. This is what you were. And now let's discuss those issues that will take you into the future. He begins to deal with marriage in chapter 7. He deals with Christian liberty as we get into chapter 8. But when ye sin, so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ, he says. Yes, you have liberty, but you don't use your liberty as a stumbling block. You don't allow your liberty to be that which gives you a license to sin or to be immoral, indecent, unscriptural, ungodly. He goes on to talk about the care of God's man. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He then deals with the Christian race. Chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. He likens the Christian life to a race. We've got to run, and we need to try to do our best to come out ahead, to win. Not that we're racing against one another. We have our own race to run. Will you finish your race? That's what he's talking about. Then he talks about the Christian standard in chapter 10, verse 6 through 11 even. He says, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them, talking about Old Testament saints and some of the... The people of the past, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. We have the Christian standard. He says, listen, there's sin, there's immorality abounding, especially in the culture of the Corinthians. He says, but that doesn't belong to you any longer. It's no longer for you. So in these 10 chapters, 7 through 16, he tells them what they are supposed to be. So what have we learned then? The first six chapters deal with their present faith, or who they are. Six chapters of the book of Corinthians. We'll see right about here. The first six chapters. Who they are. Their present faith. We then see the last ten chapters deal with what they're supposed to be or their promising future. Right there, squeezed in the middle of that entire book, God spends just three verses concerning who they were and their past failures. Here's the principle then. God is not concerned with who you were but with who you are and where you're going. Did you get that? Six chapters, who they are. Three tiny little verses of who they were and ten chapters of what they had to look forward to. Let me tell you something today. God is not concerned with who you were, but with who you are and where you're going. See, the biblical reality is this. Your past failures are washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they're to be remembered no more. That's just a reality. That is a biblical reality. Matter of fact, in Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, the Bible says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. If you start going west, you'll never reach or start going east. You'll always be going west. They're in separate. You'll never, ever run into the other. And that's how your sin is. It'll never be brought back to you. Micah 7, 19 says, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. And we always like to say, and there'll be a no fishing sign posted. The fact is, our sin is washed away. It's forgiven. it's Forgotten. Those past failures are under the blood of Jesus Christ to be remembered no more. Not only that, but salvation changes us from what we were to who we are. There is a transformation that takes place in the life of a man or a woman when they put their personal faith and trust in Christ. A wonderful, supernatural transformation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Isn't it wonderful that all things are new? That we are a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. A direct result of the finished work of Calvary and the work of God in our life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He hath made Him referring to Jesus Christ, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All because of that cross and because of the blood that was shed on Calvary, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our sin is washed away, yes. We have become new creatures in Christ and we are righteous in our standing before God. Not because I... Don't sin anymore in that sense. But my sin is under the blood of Christ. It's been washed away. Salvation begins a work to mold us into what God wants us to be. It just, it's a beginning. It begins the work. In the book of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 the Bible says being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When did you trust Christ as your Savior? You, if you don't know, you may not know the exact date, but can you remember the time, the place, in a sense? I remember where it was. I remember probably evening or morning. I remember it was at night. I don't know, but you, have, you know where it was. And th- from that very moment, a work begun in your life, of transforming work, of mind and body and action and life. You were saved as saved could be. You had all of Christ you needed. However, now your life begins to be transformed and to match that saved you that you are, that new creature that you are. You begin to put off the old, put on the new. We're all a work in progress today. Before we get all haughty and before we somehow think that we got it all figured out and we're better than somebody else, and boy, my lifestyle, my standards, and my living is different and better, and boy, if they could only be like me. Before we get there, let us remember we're all works in progress. And everybody may be at a different level. Why don't we encourage people? Why don't we try to move them along instead of looking at them with disdain or some kind of pious outlook? Instead, reach out in prayer to God and encourage the Lord to work in their life and encourage them to let God work in their life. So we're all just in the same boat today. We're forgiven, yes. But we must learn how to live the Christian life now. How to behave ourselves, the Bible says, in the house of God, which is the ground and pillar of truth. So the principle is God's not concerned with who you were then, but with who you are and where you're going. Your sin, forgiven. Your past, forgotten. Move on. We have examples of this principle in the Word of God, of course. We have some Bible characters that help us to understand it or see it firsthand. We think of Gideon. You may have read or heard about him. Gideon in chapter 6. Take your Bible, if you would, turn to chapter 6, verse 11. Gideon is a popular character among children if they've been in Sunday school any time. The Bible tells us there in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained unto Joash the Abiezarite And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him, verse 12, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. I mean, think about this. Here's this young man, apparently. Here he is, threshing wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites have Stormed the land. The Midianites have occupied the land. They're taking whatever they want from the Israelites. And here is Midian, uh, excuse me, Gideon. And here he is now hiding himself, trying to thresh the wheat so that they do not see him. Because if they find out he's threshing wheat, they'll come steal his wheat. Fearful, afraid, frightened. And all of a sudden, the Bible says an angel of the Lord comes alongside and says... The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon's probably like, what? Who are you talking to? First of all, who are you? This is scary. We know that Gideon would ultimately be used in a mighty way. We know that 32,000 troops would be assembled we know that 22,000 of those troops would go home afraid. You afraid? You don't want to fight? You're fearful for your lives? Go home. Okay, bye. 22,000 of the 32 gone. God said there's still too many. If the victory is given to you in Israel, then they'll say it was of them and not of me. Too many, Gideon. Too many, God? There's 120,000 Midianites... And we only have 10,000. Too many, Gideon. Take them on down and have them drink at the brook there. And those that put their face in the water to drink, get rid of them. Only keep the ones who bring it up, drink it with their hands. Okay. 300 are left. 300 against 120,000. Someone says, that didn't happen. Well, if that didn't happen, then the Bible, we might as well throw it out. Because it's in the book like everything else is. Ultimately, 300, along with Gideon, take some pitchers in one hand and take some lamps in another and trumpets, I should say, and smashing the, the, the pitchers and blowing the trumpets. Sword of the Lord and Gideon! Sword of the Lord and Gideon! Surrounding that troop, they all jumped up and went crazy, and before it was all said and done, 120,000 perished. Amazing. Now, you say, What do you mean? Well, we have here a people. We have Gideon, a picture of satanic bondage. I mean, he's enslaved, if you will. Here he is afraid and frightful and unable to overcome the enemy, hiding. his his work so that they wouldn't steal it and take it from him. But before it's over with, God says, I'm not worried about who you were. All I care about is who you are, Gideon, and what you can be. I'm not worried about your past and your fear and your struggles and your personal vices. I don't care about those things. It doesn't matter to me where you've been in your past. What matters to me, Gideon, is where you are now and where you're going. And you are a mighty man of valor, Just believe me on this one. And may I say today that maybe like Gideon, you are in satanic bondage in the past. Maybe at some point in your life you were enslaved by vice. Lust ruled your heart. Maybe sin dominated your lifestyle. But let me tell you something. God's not concerned as much about your past. Three little verses Is all he's concerned. He points it out and says, yep, that's who you were. But let's move on very quickly because we don't want to dwell on who you were. We want to focus on who you are and where you're going. We think of Jephthah. Jephthah. Man, this was an interesting character. You're in Judges. Turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, isn't that a great name? I mean, that's not really his name, but Gileadite, that's cool. Somebody's probably named their kid that already. But anyway, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. He was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons. And his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Hmm. What are we seeing here? Well, obviously, his biological father had a relationship with a harlot. The child is born, and somehow he raises this child takes him into his home. He has a wife and now he has other children. They won't accept him as part of the family. He he is the offspring of a strange woman. He ultimately grows up being the black sheep of the family. He knows what it means to be lonely. He knows how it feels to be unloved and unwanted in the home. I'm sure he could hear the words of his father and his stepbrothers over and over again mocking and making fun of him as they said, you'll never amount to anything. You'll be a zero, a nothing. Still, Jephthah would not allow his past to drown out his promising future. Oh, sure, he Traveled away from the house and he gathered together a group of men. They weren't all the best guys in the world. But boy, they became, he became a mighty man. A mighty man. And when Israel was in trouble with the enemy, who'd they cry out to? Who'd they call? None other than Jephthah. And Jephthah said, wait a second. You kicked me out of my house and home. You made me flee Israel. Let me ask you, if I come back and deliver you from the enemy... You have to promise you'll make me your ruler. For six years, Jephthah reigned as a judge over Israel. Six years. Maybe you grew up experiencing rejection. Maybe you know what it felt like to be unloved and unwanted. Maybe you felt those same feelings in your household Maybe you had a mom or a dad who treated you unfairly. Maybe you felt that you were the black sheep of the family. And To this very day, it hurts. And, it, and you may even harbor bitterness and heartache and horror at the fault of it. Let me tell you, God is not concerned as much about your past, my friend, as he is about your present and your future. He spends them easily three verses in the entire book of 1 Corinthians on your past. And he says, your past means nothing to me. All I care about more than anything is who you are now and where you are going. Your promising future lies ahead of you. I think of Paul the Apostle. In Acts chapter 26, turn there. It's in the New Testament, of course. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then there's Acts. Chapter 26, verse 16. There we begin reading in verse 16. It says, But rise, stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles to whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Paul responds, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I followed through. I did exactly what God demanded and required and asked of me. I mean, Paul, of course, prior to being called Paul, was a man by the name of Saul. We read about him in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, wreaking havoc on the church. He goes into a town and he has the authority to jail and to persecute and harm those who named the name of Christ. He was not a friend to the Christian. He was the enemy to the Christian. He hated the beliefs of a resurrected Savior. He despised the fact that they would not comply to Judaism. He regarded himself as the champion who would correct and rectify the problem that was growing in Israel. As a result, men and women, boys and girls, people of all sizes, shapes, and colors that named the name of Christ were thrown into prison were tortured and some even died. This was his legacy. This was his resume. This was his past. Paul was the persecutor of Christians and yet God had another plan in mind. God ultimately saved his soul. God ultimately called him to this precious work of winning others to Christ and carrying the banner of faith to all the world. It would have been easy for Paul to say to God, you don't understand what I've done. You don't realize where I've been. You don't know the hurt, the heartache I've caused others. God would say, Paul, I'm not as concerned about your past. Matter of fact, I'm not in the least bit concerned about your past. But I am concerned about where you are and where you're going. Your past failures mean nothing to me. Forget about them. Put them behind you. Stand on your feet today. And embrace your promising future, Paul. Maybe your past is riddled with regret. Maybe you've said or done things in the past that if we would bring them up, place them on this screen today, you'd be embarrassed and crawl under the seat. Maybe you've hurt people and then harmed people. Maybe you've done the most heinous and wicked things that are imaginable. But may I say today that God is not as concerned about your past as He is where you are today, and where you're going. So often, the one thing that hinders and hampers the believer is their past. Almost more than anything else, the past eats at them. The devil will use it to discourage and to distract them and to keep them from going forward for God. But God, in His book and in His wisdom, In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 16 provides us a tremendous principle. Six chapters who they are. Ten chapters where they're going and what they're supposed to be and only three little verses to remind them of where they came from. Yes, we need to remember But only for a moment. And then we need to go forward for God. We could speak of others in the Bible without a doubt. Others like Peter. Who said, I will never betray thee, Lord. I'll die. And just moments later, he betrayed the Lord. But who was it that stood and preached at Pentecost? Who was it that God used to see 3,000 saved that day and added to the church? None other than Peter. Because God's principle is true across the board and with every person. I'm more concerned about where you are, Peter, and where you're going than where you were. We could speak of Esther, little Esther, who grew up without her parents. She did not have a mom or a dad to raise her. She was raised by her cousin, Mordecai. Can you imagine? Maybe you can today. Maybe you understand what it is to have been abandoned by a dad or a mom or possibly re raised without parents at all. God says, Don't you allow the devil to use those hurts and heartaches that pass to ruin you for your future. You have a promising future. Please leave the past where it belongs, in the past. Allow it to strengthen you, but don't allow it to destroy you. Move forward, because all I'm concerned about is who you are and where you're going. God spends just three short verses in the whole book of 1 Corinthians remembering the past. He spends six chapters on the present and ten on the future. I believe it's pretty clear what God is concerned most about, your promising future today. See, God has a will and a plan for your life just like He did for Paul, the apostle. You and I cannot allow our past failures to destroy our promising future. God has great things in store for each of us today. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans 8, 37, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Your past does not have to rule you. Because you're in Christ, because you've placed your personal faith in the Lord, assuming you have. He goes on to even say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. Today, you need to give your past to the God of heaven. Just surrender your past. You know, we're kind of selfish sometimes. We try to hold on to it, don't we? You know, by holding on to our past hurts and heartaches, we believe it gives us kind of an excuse for feeling or behaving the way we do. If you'd only been through what I've been, if you've only experienced what I have, if you've only done what I've done, you'd know why I won't. You'd know why I don't. You'd know why I... We use them as excuses. We must relinquish ownership of our past. We, the Bible says, have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's now. You've been purchased I've told the story before but I like to remind myself of it. There was a green Chevy Impala, the first car I ever bought. It was a boat of a car. It was huge. The sale sign on it said as is. <laughs> and the car was selling for 500 bucks. I just got rid of it last week. No, I'm joking. But, but the sales sign said, as is. You know, I bought that car. And when I bought that car, I was buying the good and the bad. I mean, what, you know what I bought, don't you? Poor gas mileage. I bought a bad muffler. A cracked windshield. It was all mine. All mine. And you know what? The reality is this, God bought your every sin, your every flaw, your every failure when he saved your soul. He bought your every weakness, your sorrow, your burden, your heartache, your care, every one of them he purchased. Right. Amen. And you may feel that God got ripped off when he bought you. But let me tell you something. He's not some, and please don't misunderstand me, ladies. I'm not trying to be nasty. And this doesn't apply to anyone in our church. But he isn't some old senile lady being taken advantage of by a used car lot dealer. He's not walking in with his eyes closed going, okay, I'll take that one, not knowing what he got, being deceived or misunderstanding The fine print. No, he understood exactly what he was getting when he purchased your soul out of the hands and clutches of Satan and from the pit of hell. He knew exactly. You couldn't flamboozle God any more than you could beat him in an arm wrestling match. He bought you as is. You're all gods now including your past. It's not yours. It's His now. So you have no right to hold on to your past because you're not the same person you were and the past is not yours any longer. Who cares what you were? God doesn't. You say, but there's so many people remind me all the time. Get over it. Who cares what they say, what they think? You won't stand before them one day. You stand before Him. God is concerned with now. And he's concerned with your future. And you have a promising future today, believer. Leave the past where it belongs. Three piddly verses. is always spent, and he got right off the subject. Why? Because God is not concerned with who you were, but with who you are and where you're going. Father, we come to you.